carousel of colors. Wonderful, wonderful colors. Walt Disney presents... Disney. Well, hello there. I'm Walt Disney. And no, this is not a Disney interview from 1961. No, it's just the Cinemaholics gang, up to their old tricks. And look, here's my assistant, Mickey Mouse. Haha! Hi, Walt! Don't you mean Apprentice? <laughs> I sure do. Ah, who do we have here? Ah, hello, it's a me, Carlo. Carlo, well, I don't believe we've met. Yeah, get lost. Well, hold on there, Mickey. Carlo, what can we do for you? I got a big idea for a big movie, the kind of feature film that'll make your mamma mia money, huh? Hey, who said we were taking advice from every hairy guy who walks in off the street, huh? Now, calm down there, Mickey. Let's hear the man out. Oh, thank you, thank you. I just saw you're faking your first movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and it looks uh, okay, I guess. But I think after that, you can do something a bit bolder than that. Alora! Oh, interesting. And you sure do sound different from someone claiming to be Italian. What do you mean by bolder? I'll tell you what I mean by bolder. Don't interrupt. I think you should adopt the novel The Adventures of Pinocchio. It's so beloved over in Mother Italy, huh? Hey, wait a minute. Carlo, I know you. You're Carlo Collodi. You're the author of the book you're trying to sell us. Uh, no, no, no. I'm a, uh, I'm a different Carlo. I'm just a fan, you see. Anyway, Pinocchio could be your masterpiece. It's got everything you need for a wonderful movie, huh? All right, I'm interested. What is this Pinocchio about. I'll tell you, for goodness sake. He's a puppet, but he comes to life and can talk to children, huh? Well, I'll be. That's a marvelous idea for a picture. Is he a sweet young puppet? Oh, God, no, not even a little. He kicks his father and runs away and lies constantly. And his father even goes to jail because of him. <laughs> what? Can you believe this guy? He's as nuts as his own story. I'm not finished, you mouse. At one point, Pinocchio meets a kind and wise cricket who can talk. Oh, and does the cricket teach him something about being a good boy? Oh, don't make me laugh. Not even close. Pinocchio kills him with a hammer and later gets hunted down by assassins. Did you just say assassins? You'd better believe it, Rodent. His father, Geppetto, sells his only coat to buy Pinocchio a school book, but Pinocchio sells the book for a ticket to a silly little marionette show. Jiminy Cricket. Oh, that reminds me. 
The cricket comes back as a ghost right before Pinocchio bites the paw clean off of a poor cat. Uh, wait, is, is this really in your book? Th- this is real? Kids read this? Kids love it! Ah, and then back to the book, they stab him in return, but it takes Pinocchio days to die after they hang him and he suffocates to death very slowly. Well, it's an interesting idea for a picture, but hmm, could we maybe add in a fairy of some sort? Ah, you read my mind. Very good, very good. There already is a fairy, but uh, she dies. More than once, in fact. But Pinocchio comes back to life and then goes to jail for four months. Well, listen, I know we've had our differences, and by that... I mean, you never really listen to me at all. You just do whatever the hell you want. But this time, you gotta listen to me. This guy's story is absolutely insane. It'll bankrupt the Disney company. Well, I'll admit, it's a little rough around the edges. Kind of reminds me of Disneyland back in our first decade. Glad that tonight's stuff is over. But maybe just with that, we can give this picture the same old Disney magic. Like a whole musical scene dedicated to stereotyping multiple European cultures at the height of a world war. Carlo, you got yourself a picture. Oh, thank Mother Italia. Now I can finally stop using this silly voice. <coughs> See, boys, I'm not really Carlo Colati. I'm Chris from the legal department. Dig it. Oh, for Christ's sake. No, it's Chris, baby. Now, why would you go and tell a little fib like that, Christ? I'm surprised your nose didn't grow two sizes. I was trying to teach you a lesson, Walter. Caricatures and racial stereotypes aren't funny. When you put them in movies, it tends to send the wrong message. One that doesn't age well. See, I hope you've learned something today, baby. Well, I suppose I have... Come on, Mickey. We should get started right away on animating a character I just thought of named Stromboli. He'll be a great villain for Pinocchio. And get me a box of cigars. Oh, oh boy. Hello and welcome to Extra Milestone, a spin-off series of the Cinemaholics podcast. Every month, in air quotes, we celebrate a noteworthy film anniversary. These are the classic films that we believe went the extra mile in their filmmaking, making them as relevant today as they were yesterday and are therefore extra milestones. My name is Sam Noland. I am your host, as always, for the Extra Milestone. And with me, I'm delighted to be joined, uh, as always, by two of my very good friends. First up, the head writer of Cinemaholics. It is John Negroni. John, how's it going? Some would say that I pull the strings. Some would say, yes, I knew you would have a joke. And, I'm and I've got no strings on me. Not disappointed. Not disappointed at all. Also with us, we have a contributor to Cinemaholics and as well as uh, Cinema Blend and various other places on the interwebs. It is our friend Will Ashton. Will, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad we can finally do this. Yeah, that's a, we should, we should address that because 
uh it's been a it's been a long time since we did our last extra milestone it's yeah been i guess you could say you know this movie is, is celebrating 80 years that's about how long it took for us to do this episode yeah it feels like it doesn't it because this is not we've we tried i think was it three different times to do it yeah <laughs> and something yeah. went wrong every single time uh that's so, just the disney story baby I mean, it's it's more like the Terry Gilliam story, where just nothing nothing goes right, no matter what. Even though we've tried across across multiple months, like I, when was the first time we wanted to do it? Like March? Oh like my gosh, yeah, March. March, early March, like right after we did His Girl Friday. We were like, all right, Pinocchio next week. Yes, yeah, that was that was what was decided as the winner, and then we uh, and then we decided, okay, let's do Pinocchio, and it didn't work. All right, let's try it again, and it didn't work again, and it didn't work again, and now here we are. Fingers are crossed. Uh, but maybe maybe we should do a light tease that we're kind of changing extra milestone. We're going to talk more about it probably at the end of the show. Yes. But we're doing something new. Yes. You're, you're going to want to stay tuned till the end of this episode because we got some big news in the extra milestone department uh, that hopefully comes to glorious fruition uh, and that I can't wait to tell you all about. But first up, it is we, we, got, to, we got to talk about Pinocchio. Now, before we do that... Uh, there are two things I want to do. The first thing is I want to clarify, and John didn't know I was going to do this, that this is the February milestone, in spite of what John's previous uh, post might lead you to believe. His Girl Friday was the January one. John, how do you how do you live with yourself? I just think that time time's a construct, Sam, and uh, I don't take it seriously, <laughs> and neither should anybody else. I can tell that you don't, but when it comes to like like the in the blog post and on the audio release, he said his girl Friday, the February milestone. That's not true. That that was actually it's such January. a Valentine's Day kind of movie. I don't know. It is. Leave it alone. is. You might be right. So I guess so. That means that uh, we had uh, we had some other things on the docket for this month that you voted on way back when. Uh, so just to refresh everyone's memory, here's here's some what, what else was on the poll, uh, which were some other exciting titles. First up, celebrating 100 years back in February, it would have been, was The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is one of the most iconic uh, and influential silent films of all time. That one is definitely worth seeing. Uh, also, I put, because... Um, in light of the then recent passing of Max von Sydow, I also put the Virgin Spring, Ingmar Bergman's movie, celebrating 60 years. Uh, it, that that movie is really fantastic, and even though it didn't get any votes, it's definitely worth seeing. Um, it was uh, it was remade in 1972 by Wes Craven as The Last House on the Left. So if you've ever wondered where that came from, that's basically it. Yeah, I'm kind of bummed this one didn't win because this is a Bergman gap for me. So I've seen Cabinet of Caligari, but this one I would have been really happy to check out for the first time. I have a feeling that one day we'll get to Ingmar Bergman uh, and it's going to be a glorious day. And I can't wait because Bergman is one of the uh, one of the one of the greatest directors who ever lived. And I think yeah. that's no exaggeration to say that. Um, also on the list, we have a movie that at the time that we announced the uh, the contenders on the poll, I had not seen this. I have now seen it. John, I don't know if you know this. I watched La, Jol- La Dolce Vita. Oh, I oh oh no! Um, you watched one of my favorite movies, and I'm a, I'm concerned because if you didn't like it, I do not know how it will react. I liked it, John. I liked it quite a uh, bit, and I'm actually looking could. forward to see it again because I have a feeling I'll like it even more. Yeah, it was. Um, I don't want to belabor it, but did you enjoy the episodic format? I, it took me a little while to get used to, which is why I'd be curious to go back and see it again now that I sort of know what to expect. But once I got into it, I was like, oh wow, this is something yeah. really, this is something really profound, uh, and so. 
especially the ending. I was like, yeah, this is kind of like the perfect ending. So, oh, the uh, ending, the ending is so haunting. And I, I, there are so many great like uh, fan theories. This is one of the first movies that got me into fan theories of like really? what the movie means. And like, there's all kinds of stuff. Like, um, Pulp Fiction apparently borrows a lot from the way like when day turns into night or when somebody yep. goes into a room. There's theories for like how uh, different realities happen. It's crazy. Um, but definitely worth seeking out. If you watch the movie, there's so many great resources for people who have just the craziest theories. And I believe all of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh don't, don't be like me. Don't wait 21 years to see it. It's, it's worth it. Also a movie I put on the poll. This is just one of my personal favorites. I thought it might get a little traction. Alas, it did not, but it's, re- but it's good all the same. And it's the Stepford wives, a really, uh, really powerful, like creepy sort of, sci-fi movie that is really more of a horror movie than anything else um starring the great Catherine ross as someone who finds herself in just this really weird neighborhood in new england and it's her journey of figuring out what the hell is going on you're you're definitely going to want to check that out another movie i had not seen at the time of the poll is speaking of terry gilliam is brazil i also saw brazil this is the one I really like. I actually, if I could have voted, I would have voted for this one because I just want Sam to watch it for the first time. Well, you got your wish inadvertently. Uh, as a Wait, matter of fact, it? I watched it. Yeah, I, I just what? said that like 15 seconds ago, John. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear you say that. <laughs> I was just thinking about Brazil and how much I love it. Very well. Very well. Well, it's well, it's quite good. It was it's it's really I, I cannot think of any other movie like it with the just the production design on the on the infinite skyscrapers mm-hmm. alone is is enough to get me into it um and that's another one that i look forward to watching again and sneak peek i also i also should mention this for la dolce vita both that and brazil uh are eligible for future months so there is a potential that those may win the day yet so don't lose all hope yet john a movie that you should lose all hope for though is the breakfast club uh which was the last movie on our poll uh, also another movie that I watched and hadn't seen. And you know what? Wasn't really having it. Wasn't really oh, having it. It what? was, listen, I've got on record on multiple occasions saying that I'm not a John Hughes fan for whatever reason. It taps into something about the high school experience that makes me very bitter and upset. And this, this one did the same, even though I tried to, I tried to appreciate it for what it was as much as I can. And so I do not strongly dislike it in the way that i in the way that i strongly dislike ferris bueller's day off but it was not for me clearly well, not I, for me i strongly recommend for people who have um stronger opinions of breakfast club or more positive ones there's a great video on youtube that just came out from the channel now you see it which gets into how the editor of breakfast club i think her name was dd allen one of the great film editors of history um, worked a lot with uh, uh, Al Pacino. You should definitely check out that video because one of the things I personally have always appreciated about Breakfast Club was the packaging, was like how quick cuts in that uh, movie tell the story. So that video is a good refresher if you're listening and you're you want Sam to 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 learn. <laughs> yeah, that's that. I knew that was going there somewhere. I, it was going to be like for those of you who have taste. That's what I thought John was going to say, and it was more or less. No, I would never besmirch your reputation, Sam. Not in public. Not on the air. Yeah, I was going to say. All right. Uh, so th- that was what that was. Uh, gosh, I can't even talk. I'm so I'm so excited about this. Um, that's what was on the poll for last month. Uh, here's what I did not put on the poll just because uh, I didn't think it would get enough traction. A uh, lot of movies, actually. Uh, the Third Man with Orson Welles. Have I, either of you ever seen that? Uh, no, actually, surprisingly not. 
got one of the got one of the most iconic uh, characters of all time, Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles. Not just for the character, but because of the way the script uses the character, it's very impressive, and it's a it's a great noir. I highly recommend it. Um, it's been a couple of years since I've seen it, but I imagine it's still just as good. Um, another movie that I. Uh, I noticed was celebrating an anniversary and had heard a lot of interesting things about. So I decided to check out is Agnes Varda's, uh, for, forgive the pronunciation here, Le Bonheur, uh, which translates in English to happiness, um, which is a really unique movie about a marriage that falls apart, but in the most cheerful, sunshiny way possible. And it's really striking the way it does that. Um, another movie, we've got two by the same director here. Uh, which both happen to be celebrating an anniversary is Zabriskie Point and The Passenger, both directed by Michelangelo Antonioni. Are either of you familiar with those movies or the director? Not especially, no. Ah, yes. Well, that's you're you're going to want to change that because uh, those are two very very impressive movies um, about sort of uh, that really sort of sort of encapsulate a lot of the spirit of the '70s. I think um, I think they're both really fantastic, and so. Uh, if you have time, check them out. Also, two other movies by the same director is The Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Inferno, both directed by Giallo uh, aficionado Dario Argento. I watch both of these movies and they are a ton of fun. Uh, the Bird with the Crystal Plumage is a really exciting murder mystery. And Inferno is more of like a demonic, what the hell is going on, Grand Guignol haunted house kind of movie. So a typical Pierre uh, Argento movie. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And in fact, matter of fact, uh, Inferno is the second part of a trilogy, the Mother Trilogy, I believe it's called. Oh, yeah. Mother of Tears. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which started by Suspiria, uh, then Inferno. And then I forget the title of the third movie. But yeah, that's it's it's a lot of the same, but in a really fun way. And so it's some of the most fun kills I've seen in a long time. Um, let's see. And what else? Oh, yeah. Uh, a couple others. We've got La Femme Nikita, Luc Besson's uh, assassin thriller. That one's really unique. I think it's it's really unlike other assassin movies where the the person in question is really doing it and hating that they have to be an assassin. And so I haven't seen a lot of movies like that. So that's unique for that reason. And a last last up on the list, a fantastic, fantastic documentary by uh, Abbas Kirostami, Close Up. Have either of you seen Close Up? Uh, only bits and pieces of it. I haven't seen it, no. This is my birth year though, right? This is 90? This is 90, yeah. Uh, this is, it's really, really striking. Um, and one of the better one of the better documentaries I've ever seen. So it's too bad we couldn't go into more detail, but alas, that was not the case. I was gonna say this is ninety sounds like a really depressing uh, future <laughs> sequel to this is forty. <laughs> Two thousand sixty-two, yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Oh my. Well, gentlemen, it has come to that time where we must officially uh must officially dive into the world. A Pinocchio, the wonderful uh, world of color, some might say. Uh, this is, of course, the Disney movies. The second uh, feature-length Disney film, in fact, right after uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937. Uh, do you all know how uh, this was uh, supposed to be their third movie rather than their second? Yeah, yeah. They were working on uh, something else. Um, yeah. I think they wanted it. Was it Bambi they wanted to make? It was make Bambi. Next? They wanted to make Bambi second. Yeah, yeah, but then Bambi took a while because they didn't have the the deer figured out yet. 
And you can tell because in Snow White, you see the deer in that movie and you compare it side by side with Bambi, which was, you know, what, like seven years later. Uh And it's incredibly different. I think Bambi, the big issue they ran into with that movie was they didn't know how to do the backgrounds really well. And you'll notice that what they eventually went with was like this watercolor, uh, almost like Robert Kirkman kind of background that they Uh go with in Bambi. And that's what makes that movie just really stand out because otherwise they were worried it would have too much detail. And it's kind of amazing when you think about it, like uh, a movie in the 1940s with too much detail in it would have been distracting. Yeah. Um, yeah no, they made Pinocchio next. It, it reminds me of how when Pixar was making Finding Nemo, they had to scale back the ocean effects because they were too convincing. And they thought people were going to accuse them of just like f- taking ocean footage and adding fish into it, uh, which is which is which is fascinating, especially considering how. Uh, how rudimentary their technology was compared to what we have now. Um, yeah, Bambi was going to be second. Uh, it, it ended up being their fifth feature. Uh, came out in 1942 because it was Snow White, then Pinocchio, then Fantasia later that year. And indeed, and indeed it will be eligible later this year for the extra milestone. Then, yeah. Dumbo. then Dumbo. Yeah, which Dumbo kind of saved them because Dumbo and Bambi, uh, because Pinocchio and Fantasia were massive flops. <laughs> like, yeah, they just uh, so for context, uh, yeah, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs made like six million dollars, and Pinocchio and Fantasia barely cracked like a million and a half. Yeah, yeah. by comparison, I've got the we're we're gonna get into it a little bit later, but I might as well now. I've got the I've got the box office exact numbers right here. Uh, Pinocchio was a failure at first for a variety of reasons. Um, the the reviews were kind of mixed initially, which I was fascinated by. Um, it cost roughly uh, in 1940 numbers uh, 2.3 million and only made about 1.6 of that back. So that's a that's a huge loss uh, for context adjusted for inflation. That would be if something with a forty-two million dollar budget now only made like thirty of it back. So that's and a huge a big number. contributing factor is that uh, the European markets were shut down because of World War II. Yeah, until like the nineteen fifties. So they didn't yeah. even they didn't even get the movie over in Europe until uh, like a decade after it came out. So, but even in the U.S., it didn't make as much money as Snow White. So it's it's not solely because of that, but it is a big factor. Like people just weren't really going to the movies during this time in the same number. And a lot of it did have to do with the war. A lot of it had to do with just a lack of interest in this movie. So yeah. like all those factors together, it, it it led to, yeah, the mixed reviews, as you were saying, even though there were critics who called it a masterpiece, like uh-huh. as soon as it came out. Yeah, it was Academy Award nominated for uh, original song for Wish Upon a Star and original score. So it was not without its without its supporters, but it was just not the smash hit out of the gate that you might assume it was given the classic right. legacy that it has nowadays. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Let's let's talk a little about how um, how this movie came to be. Uh, as we sort of alluded in the little opening uh, sketch we did, it was based on an- That wasn't us, Sam. Those were our guest hosts. Those were our guest hosts. They, that's yeah. everything you need to know. Just rewind back to those first five minutes and you'll know everything. Uh, but no, it was actually, it was based on an 1883 story for children, believe it or not, given how many uh, really kind of dark, crazy things happen in it. Yeah, we should be clear, like our guest hosts who were describing it earlier, like none of that was exaggerated. That is straight yeah. from The Adventures of Pinocchio, which yeah. is a late 18, late 19th century serial from Italy. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was. it's really kind of dark and demented and cynical. 
especially compared to the movie, which even in itself has a lot of darkness uh, sort of lurking under the surface. Uh, written by Carlo Collati, it was discovered by uh, animation director Norman Ferguson during the production of Snow White. Uh, who just happened upon the story, showed it to Walt Disney, uh, and I get Walt Disney just saw something there that that he thought would be really exciting uh, to the point yeah. where, and I don't, and I don't know how true this is, but from what I could tell, it's it's reliable. Uh, he gave a 25 minute speech when receiving an Academy Award for Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, just about how excited he was about this Pinocchio movie. Like, oh, you just wait and see, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, <laughs> And another thing. <laughs> and another thing. Like that was that was before the days when they would sort of play people off as willingly. Uh, yeah. It was it wasn't as much of like a theatrical production. It was more of a ceremony. So long speeches were uh, were a little bit more a, a little bit less frowned upon, I suppose. And I don't think it was on TV because at that point there wasn't really TV yet, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that was so, 1937. Just the so. radio. Yeah, so it was either it was either over the radio or it was transcripted. Uh, the, I I'll, I should have looked more into it, but regardless, that is the story: is that Walt Disney was so excited that he couldn't hold it in, uh, not even at the Academy Awards, the most prestigious awards ceremony yeah. in all of show. It's business. worth mentioning, like that confidence he had for Pinocchio came from the success of Snow White, where oh, he yeah. felt like like he and his animators were like, "Let's see what we can do next," because they learned so much. Um, about their own limitations and there were so many things they couldn't do with snow white they felt unleashed for this next movie they had a few years to work on it they already had it in production and i think like they did halt production at one point because a lot of the story wasn't working but they were ready to like follow snow white up with something like bigger better and everything in between yeah yeah and you can tell especially um if you watch uh if if you just compare some of the uh like technological advances from Snow White directly to Pinocchio, you could see they had definitely worked a lot of kinks out. Now, not that I want to make it clear, not that Snow White and the Seven Dwarves isn't one of the most beautiful, striking, artistic animated movies of all time. It is. Um, but you can see how they sort of improved on some of the techniques uh, that they had already innovated exactly. in 1937. Especially like the water effects. My gosh, like yeah. <laughs> it's like such a jump. Yeah, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about the animation, but um, when it came to adapting the story, the actual story itself, uh, they knew they had to lighten it up a little bit in air quotes, and they also knew that it had to be sort of um, had to be sort of truncated rather than just sort of adapted directly. Because if you read uh, the plot of the original book, The Adventures of Pinocchio, it's really kind of fascinating the way that Pinocchio takes a long, long time to learn his lesson. Uh, like, it, like it takes five or six instances of Pinocchio screwing up uh, really dramatically for something to finally, for some change to finally take hold. And even then, it's, uh, it's not, there's some indication that it might not be permanent. Um, it's a very cynical book from what I can tell, or at least, at least honest in that cynical way, if you know what I'm it's saying. It's also, it, it's very dark and it, it showed that Collodi, he just had a very low opinion of kids. Exactly. <laughs> like, because the whole subtext of that book is that if you want to be a real boy, then you have to follow like my strict idea of morality. And uh -huh. that's what it comes down to. That's why it's not very good for kids. Cause like it, it just, I don't know. It, it makes Pinocchio such a rambunctious, like straw man of a character. I, I can't say no pun intended, but you know what I mean? Ha. It's like, it's just propping up like the worst children. It reminds me of like those, like, 
you know, d- don't be a goofus and galant. You know what I'm saying? Like the, <laughs> oh, don't be a doofus. Like those, those like a uh, marionette shows or oh, puppet yeah. shows. Yeah, there it was. It was uh, for whatever reason, it just turned out to be a channel for for uh, youth hatred, youthful hatred, I should say. Yeah, it's very mean spirited. Yeah, and listen, not that there's not a place for that, but it just it just especially now it just does not seem like something uh, that children would really latch on to. Um, so what they did was, and there were illustrations of uh, Carlo Collati's. Um, story. And so they had to do a lot of work on the puppet's design to make it sort of um, a little bit more to be projected into, especially if you're a kid. And so uh, what they did was they more or less just animated a human child uh, and then turned the arms into wooden limbs and the legs, I should say. Uh, and then just and then just changed the nose ever so slightly. So it looked like this little wooden nose. So it actually doesn't... Uh, like you could sort of imagine it as a puppet, but it is more or less uh, with a few small changes. It could be turned into it could be turned into a human child, which indeed does happen. Uh, they did a, they did something similar with Jiminy Cricket, um, which in the book was an incidental character, sort of sort of trying to preach morals to Pinocchio, uh, and promptly gets hit and killed by a hammer. So that's fun. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of because uh, he he haunts Pinocchio for the rest of the, the whenever he shows up again. Yeah. And uh, I think part of that is like kind of taking a note from Charles Dickens and a Christmas Carol and that kind of thing. Oh yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Jiminy Cricket sort of acts as a, the moral guiding spirit uh, in the, in the novel. And that's not dissimilar to what Jiminy ends up being in the movie. Um, what's i something interesting I read was that uh, one of the animation uh one of the sequence directors or now uh, what's the phrase? I can't remember, but one of the animators uh, Ward Kimball was, was ready to leave, was ready to like walk out and just quit working at Disney. Just wasn't having it anymore. Then at the last second, someone said, Hey Ward, how do, how would you like to be the animate, the lead cricket animator on Jiminy cricket and get what I'm sure was a, would be a very hefty paycheck. And he was like, all right, fine. One more. Yeah, yeah, we should say he was part of uh, Disney's Nine Old Men. They were they yeah. were like the main team of animators, to what you were saying, and I think uh, I think all of them were still working up until I think the last film one of them was on was The Rescuers. Oh wow! So they so they went on for a long time then. Oh yeah, yeah. Ward Kimball, I think he didn't die until like the last decade. Um, huh. I think the decade before this current one. Interesting. Well, that's some some people just 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 live a long life and accomplish a lot. So that's nice mm-hmm. to hear. Uh, when it came to casting Pinocchio, um, Walt Disney was very adamant and wanted famous voices in air quotes. Um, so when it came to casting Pinocchio, they wanted to get an actual child. Uh, and who they ended up getting was was young Dickie Jones, who was only 11 years old at the time. Uh, Dickie Jones most famously also uh, played a supporting role in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with Jimmy Stewart. That's right. So was certainly no stranger to the limelight. Um and then uh, when it came to casting uh, Jiminy Cricket, uh, they chose a musician, Ukulele Ike, who was actually quite a well-known musician. Yeah, Cliff Edwards. He was he was very big in his day. I mean, this guy was uh, 
I think he was in Singing in the Rain. I mean, he just had, he he was like one of the big actors. Like people like to look at Aladdin and be like, oh, that was the first time an animated movie had a big celebrity voicing and character. I was like, no, <laughs> like that's that's gone as far back as Pinocchio. It's just, oh, yeah. you know, that was like a resurgence of that type of, uh, bit, um, I shouldn't say bit casting, but yeah. certainly casting with the intention of like bringing people in who recognize a celebrity. Yeah, and it's and that's something that hasn't really died down since. I don't think that's that still goes on to this day. Right, it's gone through waves of popularity. Uh huh. And it's and it's on a huge uptick right now. Uh, maybe one day it'll decline, but only time will tell. Uh, and then this is this is I was fascinated to find this out. The actor who played Geppetto, um, Pinocchio's kindly old father. Uh, slash inventor or whatever term you want to use was an Austrian actor uh, actor named Christian Rubb who on the when they were uh, when they were recording the lines for the movie was made it very n- well known that he was a Nazi sympathizer and would not shut up about it. Yeah, we should what say he was, he was born he was born in the Austrian Empire. Oh um, yeah. He eventually, yeah, he eventually like lived in the U.S. Uh, I think he lived out in, out here in California. And if you look at picture, like a picture of him side by side with the animated Geppetto, like you can tell that they animated Geppetto based on his appearance. But yeah, it's hard hard to avoid that that little fact that yes, he was uh, he, he especially in this point in time he was a sympathizer. Yeah. Um, Especially kind of interesting considering the show Plot Against America, which kind of gets into like American Nazi sympathizing, uh, just came out. So really interesting to consider. Interesting. One one thing I did find out, though, that was kind of amusing uh, in light of that was that uh, none of the none of the other cast or crew like could really object to it or anything because it was like one of their big gets. And so they couldn't be like, hey, could you tone down the Nazi stuff? So what they did instead was they really insidiously there's a scene late in the movie where Geppetto is on a boat inside a whale, monster of the whale, and is and the boat's like rocking back and forth as Geppetto is trying to trying to throw a fishing line into the water and get some food. Uh, apparently they they had to animate over that. And so they actually had to sort of they actually had to sort of film that taking place. And so they made it a really they made it a really hard time for Christian Rubb to have to sort of model that sequence staggering around on some model of a boat or something. So that's that's at least vaguely amusing. And we should point out too, yeah, he, uh, the, there were a lot of Nazi sympathizers in America, much more than people like to admit uh, in in our current pop culture. But yeah, it's it's not exactly like a this was a more common occurrence than the history books tend to point out. Very interesting. Well, Christian Rubb was one of them, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, it didn't go too far. But of course, we'll never know. Uh, and and a couple last bit of interesting casting news: the the uh, actress who plays and indeed does the essentially the motion capture is basically what they were doing for the blue fairy who comes in, uh, uh, sort of helps Pinocchio out throughout the movie. Uh, an actress named Evelyn Venable, who is the columbia logo that's evelyn venable uh and also the blue fairy so i was fascinated to find that out um i did not know that oh yeah that's these these logos they got to come from somewhere so i I mean it makes sense yeah i just didn't what better place than pinocchio Mm -hmm. yeah i think the newer columbia logo the one we see nowadays that's like a composite right of like multiple women put together and i think i'm not 
I'm not sure about this, but I'm pretty sure that uh, they used some of, like, they maintained some of Evelyn Venable's appearance as well in that composite. Yeah, I thought I remember reading something about that, like how the inspiration for it came from a bunch of different people. But yeah, that's a whole other tangent. <laughs> that's the the Columbia logo episode. Keep an eye out for that, folks. Um, and one last bit of uh, casting trivia that I found utterly fascinating is that uh, they almost used Mel Blanc, famous voice actor. I say the greatest voice actor of all time uh, as the as a what's what's the name of the cat? Oh, gosh, I can't remember. Something the cat. Gideon? Uh, Gideon the cat. That's right. I knew yeah, it started not with Figaro. G. Not Figaro, no. Gideon the cat, the sort of mischievous sidekick of uh, of the other, of the evil fox, I believe it was. Um, and uh, th- like lines were recorded and everything. But for whatever reason, they decided to have Gideon be a mute character. You've got yeah. Mel Blanc. <laughs> and all they used was a hiccup. So you can hear yeah. Mel Blanc hiccup in the movie, and that's it. I I wonder if they knew what they were missing. Contextually, like Looney Tunes was the main competitor to Disney. Yeah. Right. At this point in history, like Looney Tunes was on like an uptick and was starting to overshadow like the Mickey Mouse shorts. So there was a little bit of that like conventional wisdom says <laughs> yeah. that uh Mel Blanc was kind of downplayed probably for that reason in the movie. Um, but I think I think Walt Disney like maintained for the rest of his life that it was really just because they thought the character worked better uh, mute, which for all we know, that could be the case. And that said, though, Mel Blanc eventually did do more. Uh, another thing for Disney with who framed Roger Rabbit. So, yeah, w- wasn't the end of the line for his uh, his career with Disney. There is some justice in the universe after all. That's very reassuring. Uh we're going to talk about a little bit about the animation because there was a lot of innovation that was uh, done on Pinocchio. Uh, they started in September of 1938. And as we know, uh, the movie was completed by February 1940. Uh, they used a lot of miniature models to sort of uh, animate over and use as references. Uh, this is something that is still done to this day. And this, to, to go to, John, what you were saying earlier about the way they improved the backgrounds. Um, You'll notice if you watch a lot of old 2D animated movies, especially the Disney movies, um, they have sort of that watercolor background looking thing that stays completely still and doesn't move at all. Uh, and the way they did that was they used what's called a multiplane camera, which once I found out what it was, I was completely fascinated because it's a, a tremendous invention. It's it's a camera pointed downwards at a bunch of panes of glass and on each one they'll paint a landscape or or place down uh, a sheet with a like a painting or a drawing of a landscape and so that way they can have sort of the illusion of depth in animation kind of effortlessly because it would be insanely difficult uh otherwise to have to redraw those environments right every single time this is up there with rotoscoping as like yeah. one of the key innovations of animation in this century. Like without this technology, like when you watch Pinocchio, one of the first establishing shots is the village, the Dutch village. And the reason you feel like you could sink into that world. And the reason it feels so lived in is because of this camera and the way that it allowed them <laughs> like to like what you said, it would have been virtually impossible for them to animate all of that. Yeah. Or at least what have taken years and years to do. They, they they definitely innovated a lot. Um, and they did the same thing with Snow White. But there's uh, 
a lot more detail. It seems like here, like e- like every single uh, background item just has just has even the smallest details you could notice, and it's really really a visually striking movie. Um, they use the live actors for reference again. Christian Rubb and Evelyn Venable were uh, character models, as were several of the other actors. Uh, when it came to animating the cricket. Jiminy Cricket doesn't actually look like a cricket. It's just sort of a little man yeah. with green skin, which you don't even they, like unless you stop tried. to think about. Yeah, they have a there are a few times when they try to give it cricket like features, but really they thought it would be way too off putting to have like an accurate cricket jumping around. <laughs> I think they made the right choice is what I'm saying. Right. And he was animated uh, at, to who you're referring to earlier, Ward Kimball. And uh, this is a big reason why he stayed was because Walt allowed him to supervise the animation of Jiminy Cricket. And that was like what they came to. Like he came up with the idea of like, okay, and a literal, a literal cricket is not going to carry this story. Uh-huh. And I think one of the reasons they, they hit so many pitfalls with the original production of Pinocchio was because they, it was missing that heart. And Jiminy Cricket felt so much like a, just a pain, like a, a sort of foil to Pinocchio and instead they reanimated him. They reworked him to be more of the heart of the story. He is the friend, the supporter, the person who guides Pinocchio and is his conscience. So they animated him as such. And I think that was one of the brilliant moves that allowed this film to get made because I don't think Walt would have been happy enough with the final product if they hadn't made that key creative decision. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a there's definitely a lot to that how how Jiminy Cricket is sort of the one who keeps things hopeful, you know, like is always saying, hey, listen, I know you screwed up Pinocchio, but you can do it. I believe in you. And having that kind of belief is is, is a, a nice thing, I think. Uh, so they made the right decision animating Jiminy Cricket that way. A regular uh, Arthur the Aardvark situation. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you never disappoint me when it comes to Arthur the Aardvark references. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, the movie as a whole was just incredibly revolutionary uh, in all types of effect. You look at the rain in this movie uh, and how it took them so long to figure out how to do that and do it well. And it looks like pretty much equally as good as just about any rain you'd see nowadays in a 2D animated movie, at least. Um, and apparently the the water related things gave him a lot of trouble because the ocean took about a year to uh to film and that's only like the last 15 20 minutes of the movie so they had a lot of a lot of road to pave and i'm glad that they paved it and it looks great at the same time yeah yeah they uh they made them very impressionistic right in order to focus more on like the animation of it and less on trying to make it realistic and I think that uh, you can read in between the lines. It seems that at this point with Snow White, they had really figured out how to animate expression, how to animate characters and acting. And so at that point, it was sort of like second nature. And to what you're saying, they decided for Pinocchio, for our next step, let's really like redefine and evolve how natural effects can be animated. So that's why Pinocchio is like filled with all of these flourishes. It really was these animators flexing those muscles in a way on a scale that they had never really done with shorts because the shorts just didn't did not have this like type of imagery available to them creatively and then you see like fantasia is like where this stuff gets brought to like it's like the combination of everything they had learned at that point 
and uh, even like uh, I think like the animation of like the fairy dust and the blue fairy, like all of that stuff went into Fantasia, which was like their victory lap. Uh, maybe not financially, <laughs> yeah. uh, but artistically. Yeah. I think it paid off in the long run, but that's that's right. fascinating stuff. Gentlemen, we've talked a lot about uh, sort of what went into this movie, but we haven't really talked about the movie itself, and I think it's time we did that. Um, so I think at this point, uh, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna toss it. Will Ashton, what is your experience with Pinocchio? What is how many times have you seen it, and how have you seen it, and what is your what's your connection to this movie? Oh gosh, um, well I would definitely say. In comparison to the other movies we talked about on Extra Milestone, this is easily the one I've seen the most. Um, and that primarily just relates to my childhood where I watched a lot of uh, Disney movies, a lot of classic ones, a lot of newer ones at the time. Um, and I know Pinocchio was one that was on pretty regular rotation, more than I originally thought until I started rewatching the movie. And I remembered how much I remembered as it went along. Um, so it definitely was a pretty key film in my childhood. But um I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen it, uh, but it has to be a good a good few. Nice. How many times yeah. have you seen it since you were a kid? Mm. Since I was a kid? I mean, this is probably the first time I've seen it in at least 15 years, so it's been a while. Oh, wow. Must have brought back a lot of, a lot of memories then. Yeah. Interesting. John, what about yourself? Yeah, very similar to Will. I, I watched a lot when I was a young, young kid, but this wasn't one of the Disney movies that I watched from start to finish as much. Like it was the because I was watching this when I was like three or four. So there was a lot in this movie I didn't remember because I didn't rewatch it once I was a little bit older and I started having more memories. <laughs> and I, I rewatched this more recently for the first time in decades back when Disney Plus first came out. I watched it uh, on there with a few people and I was like, my gosh, like there's so much in this movie I completely forgot about. Uh, including um, some of the big set pieces, the fact that we're underwater for longer than I remembered. <laughs> like there was so much. I I remember really as a kid, the the scenes that always stuck out to me much more were Monster of the Whale, of course, Pleasure Island, and also everything with like Jiminy Cricket in the beginning. Because when I was a kid, that was the part where I paid attention because my attention span was a kid's. So at four years old, like I remember the book, I remember the, like the toy shop and I remember Pinocchio coming to life. But by that point I'd usually like gotten up and, you know, went over to have a snack or something, you know, baby John was not, uh, was not quite the cinephile. Baby John. He would try to be eventually. <laughs> That's fantastic. It sounds like you've come a long way with, with your, uh, uh appreciation of the cinematic art form animated and otherwise very it is weird because i've i've rewatched snow white much more frequently as an older adult than i have pinocchio for whatever reason i'm not sure why i think snow white just always connected with me a little bit more than this story but i do still i highly highly enjoy pinocchio and uh, we'll talk about it yeah for sure uh it's real quick just because there's not a lot to it until uh several months ago when we were originally going to record the episode i had never seen pinocchio so i've actually only seen it one time uh watch it on disney plus as was convenient uh and yeah so i i had seen bits and pieces um i have i had of course heard uh no strings on me and when you wish upon a star and stuff hell you hear that every time you see a disney movie because it's the logo mm-hmm but yeah, this movie I had a, uh, I had no real connection to it besides always hearing about it, and very always very quickly followed by, dude, you have to see Pinocchio, and I finally saw it. So here we are, gentlemen. Let's talk about 
Pinocchio. Uh, John and Will, do you all do you want to do you want to kind of set the stage a little bit and tell us how the story begins because it's very very interesting start to the story. Yeah, so I, I mean, you guys have already kind of uh, brushed on the beginning a little bit, but yeah, we have a traditional storybook opening with Jiminy Cricket. He is uh, quickly shown to be our narrator, and he is telling the story of uh, basically how he was it he, like he got his like wings or no, that's no, that's um, it's a wonderful life. It's um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got his got his chirpers. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. he he opens the book right, and he's just like. Kind of a cool story, too. And then he's just yeah. like, let me tell I'm you sorry, about it. What was that voice, John? <laughs> kind of a cool that story. Was, I don't know. <laughs> it was a little bit of Goofy and a little bit of Mickey Mouse kind of like coming together. <laughs> yeah. I was like yeah. Rodney Dangerfield as a young boy. Oh, kind of a cool story. Oh, I think I think Jiminy is a little bit more like, wow, isn't that an interesting story? Well, like, would you look a... at that? Yeah. Fun fact about that storybook opening, by the way, if you look closely in the background, you can te- you can see two books for Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, two stories that Disney would adapt in the following decade. So I thought that was neat. I'll say real quick, Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket is a punk. Just putting that out there. <laughs> I think your definition of punk is proven to be very broad, John. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is I know this is this is getting ahead of ourselves completely. But no, you see a it. kid being hauled off by strangers and you're like, I got to go tell somebody in authority. No, that'd be snitching. <laughs> Screw you, Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> you idiot. You're not a conscience. You're a joke. John's got some strong thoughts about Jiminy Cricket, as it turns out. Putting yourself before Pinocchio. That's what he did. <laughs> some conscience. Very well. Very well. Worried about your reputation, Jiminy? You worried about pe- what people are going to say about you? Jiminy was afraid he would be like arrested or something, which I yeah. find very hilarious that they have a By pair the of tiny handcuffs. Oh, yeah. By the by the insect police, I guess. Anyway, Pinocchio, he would have been fine if not for Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket is the villain of the story. There you go. Hot takes <laughs> coming at you left and right. You were talking about the movie, Will? Yeah, I think so. Um, we, can, yeah. we can sort of jump around. We're into it. But yes, by all means, continue. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we we. Uh, through him, we get introduced to this uh, lowly uh, toy maker, or I guess, yeah, I guess he makes a bunch of, like, he's like a carpenter, uh, man of all sorts. He makes like a bunch of clocks, like a bunch of other wooden yeah. knickknacks. A, a craftsman. A weird craftsman, considering his best friends are a cat and a fish. But, a cat yeah. and a fish, yeah. But he is, uh, you know, an older figure, and he never really had uh, a son or someone to take over his legacy. And, uh, one day uh, he finishes his creation, his newest uh, creation, which is a little wooden boy that uh, he wishes on a star would be a real boy. And then as uh, fate and luck would have it, he gets his wish and he his creation becomes a real boy to an extent in that he comes alive, but he's not a real living, breathing boy. He uh, has to basically find his morality before that can happen. And he has to use the help of Jimmy Cricket, who was, I guess, I don't know, we kind of alluded to this, but like Jimmy Cricket's in this more than I remembered. That was one of the bigger things that uh, stuck out to me upon rewatching this film is that Jimmy Cricket is a much bigger figure. <laughs> in yeah. This he's story. like, he's not just the narrator. He's also like the main character yeah. or like the second main character. So like, it's a weird combination. It's an interesting yeah. story trick to yeah. try to, to him to be your surrogate, your way in for the audience, especially because um the actor was like so well known that like it helped 
it helped guide the story along and keep it from because if Pinocchio, who's this like naive, brainless, only been alive for one day character is your main character, that's kind of hard to follow. So you kind of need somebody in there who does have knowledge, who can sort of like guide the audience along and talk and break the fourth wall and do all that. Yeah, yeah I guess so. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he is basically yeah, his conscience is like father figure in some respects. Um, yeah, but I guess traditionally when I think of Pinocchio, I just think of like him basically on his own. Like in the same way that like when I think back on a movie like AI, I don't really think about the teddy bear. <laughs> I just think about Haley Joe Osmond. But uh, maybe that's different. We're for very guys. different people, Willash. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think about that teddy bear every day. Okay. I I, I do miss the teddy bear. Um, but I mean, yeah, if you guys don't know uh, AI, the Steven Spielberg movie, I'm li- I'm talking to listeners. I'm not, I know you two probably know, but <laughs> yeah, she's is uh extremely influenced by Pinocchio. Um, I don't know if more of the fairy tale or the Disney film or both, but I know that's definitely like they called a Pinocchio quite a bit, don't they? Like pretty directly. Yeah, I mean it's been a while since I've seen it, so I don't know how how on the nose it was. But when I watched as a kid, and I didn't put two and two together, <laughs> uh, it took a few years for me. Yeah, baby, baby Will had not discovered the uh, internet quite yet. Baby yeah, Will, I, I baby Will, fantastic. We'll get to you, baby Sam. It's only a matter of time. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's more or less the story of Pinocchio. We we basically follow him through different adventures. He finds himself with some shady figures, and uh, you know, he has to f- pretty much through Jimmy Cricket's help and and some others, he has to basically return to his uh, intended caregiver and. Uh, that involves him basically going to all sorts of different places. Like you said, Fantasy Island, or sorry, Pleasure Island. Fantasy Island. <laughs> hey, Pl- and Pleasure Island, weirdly enough, is a real location now in Disney World. Um, ah. You guys have ever hung out like downtown Disney or Disney Springs, whatever it's called these days. But there's like wow. a Pleasure Island. I think yeah. it's still around. I haven't been there. I'm sure time, they're but... smoking cigars and yeah, well, turning into dog it's, it's supposed to be for adults. Yeah, oh, okay. Kind of I was going to say, I wonder if, if the kids have seen the movie, they're probably not going to want to go there, you know? Or they will, yeah. you know, they're like, they want to play pool. Yeah. Want to see what it's like to be a donkey for a day. Why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing, one thing I'll say, I didn't remember about this movie as much, um, not just Jimmy Cricket's role, but also this is a much more adventurous movie than I remember. Like it's, it's a bit longer. Oh yeah. And it feels long, like mm-hmm. not in a bad way, but just so much happens and like, there's a lot going on. And I think by the time you get to the point where Pinocchio is like diving into the ocean head first. I'm just like, does this movie end? And again, not a bad way. I'm just it like, man, eventually. there's mm-hmm. a lot going on here. Well, yeah, that's the thing is about the second half. I think it's part of the reason why, similar to you, like I remember when I think about Pinocchio, I think about more of the beginning because that's kind of the more traditional story arc. Whereas like after that it has kind of like almost like sort of like a vignette thing where it's like he's with this character for a while and he is in this place right. for a while and stuff. So I think that kind of makes it feel a little bit more broken up than it really is. But I agree with you. It did seem a little longer, not in a bad way, just a little longer than I had remembered uh, before I started watching again. Which is interesting because it's not even that long by traditional standards. It's only like, what, 80, 85 minutes long, Um, but it chugs along 88 minutes. Yeah. So so it's not even uh, it would be considered a short movie by today's standards, but probably a lot of that had to do with just the uh, they could only do so much animation. Um, but also, again, yeah, there is a lot of stuff that happens in it. It really just chugs along um, from at, like immediately after the slow beginning, by the time they wake up that next morning and immediately send Pinocchio off to school, which I think is fascinating that they're just so willing to accept that like, all right, this is a child. Well, you got to go to school. 
I mean, I've known you for a few hours, but what are you going to do? Stay home? You know, you can't just, you, don't be a bum. You got to go to school, dang it. So I think that's kind of interesting, but it's all part of the fairy tale after all. But yeah, I don't know. I I thought it was funny uh, that he goes straight to school, like, but it does sort of move the story along. Like I could see the decision of like, well, you can't just have him cooped up with Geppetto. You have to separate him somehow. And um, by creating that as a more like kids need to go to school, like that's important. It, it makes sense. It just it, it does kind of stick out as adult. But I can imagine like a kid watching this like and be like, I hate school. No wonder Pinocchio didn't go. He yeah. wants to be an actor. Yeah. Playing hooky again. Very funny, by the way, how this movie makes fun of actors quite often. Yeah, they're not afraid of it, especially considering that they went kind of out of their way to get a lot of a lot of, uh, you know, blue ribbon talent for this thing but that is neither here nor there right well they're not doing it because they have anything specific like i I didn't take it as they think acting is bad i think they take it as like the audience will find this funny because audiences would think a joke at the actor and an actor's expense would be humorous Uh uh-huh one thing I guess about this film upon rewatch that that took me aback a bit was just the uh inclusion of anthropomorphic foxes not that they're out of practice for an anime film, just like everything else was, I mean, even beyond the inclusion of Jimmy Cricket, like it felt pretty, a lot more like, you know, kind of grounded and, and stuff. And then it's just like, and here are these two talking foxes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is different compared to Jiminy because Jiminy does not interact with right. any exactly, characters. Yeah. Yeah. He only interacts with Pinocchio. So it's like the fact that, oh, it's John and Gideon are like walking the streets. Yeah, it is. It does stick out. <laughs> And they interact with the coachman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is a human, right? Well, he's kind of the devil, but sure. But then there's even <laughs> that whole thing where like the kids get turned into donkeys. So yeah, the, this this movie's relationship with like animals and humans is fraught, I guess, to say the least. It's, it's, yeah. it's a little mixed on how those rules work. And it doesn't really care about establishing rules. It just sort of wants to suck you in and make you not think about it. And I think that happens to varying degrees of success. And then I guess if you're an animal that talks, you're bad. If you're an animal <laughs> that doesn't talk, you're good. And then Jiminy Cricket's like morally neutral. <laughs> well, we've established that Jiminy Cricket is bad, right? I think so. I think he's a bad person. Oh. <laughs> I think he's morally complex. He's only in it for a, a badge. Like, that's it? Yeah. He wanted yeah, a badge? I mean, his interests are flawed, but yes. He's a cop. <laughs> And also a cricket, which is hilarious. Um, one thing I do want to touch on about Jiminy Cricket, though, real fast before we move on, though, is um, I think it's I think it's a, I think it was a very good decision to make Jiminy Cricket to expand from this sort of incidental uh, character into the moral center, so to speak, is that um, it's you can see how as a kid watching this for the first time, you might look at Jiminy Cricket and be like, oh, wow, look at that that's not like me. That's a cricket. So you can see how they might be able to look up to that character because if it was just Pinocchio as the main character, they're probably not going to be like really paying attention to the story. They're just going to be sort of along for the ride as opposed to uh, with the help of Jiminy Cricket being being allowed to sort of explore what Pinocchio is going through. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think it's I think it was it a good does. choice. Yeah. yeah, I think it makes sense just that like, the thing that doesn't make sense, because I think that's what they're trying to do with the character. They're trying to make him the one with the character arc that is more relatable for adults, whereas Pinocchio's character arc 
is more relatable for kids. But the problem is that I think that Jiminy Cricket's motivations don't make any sense. Like the things that he wants to do, like he wants to be a conscience. I think that's weird because it, what adult wants to be a kid's conscience? And he's doing it, like I said before, like he's doing it for a prize, right? Yeah. So like he's not doing it for its own sake. Like when the blue fairy is like, you're going to do this thing. And he's at first, it seems like he's doing it just out of the goodness of his heart. But then he's like, well, wait, what do I get out of it? And it's kind of like, wait, what? Like, why do you, why do you, why does that matter? Like, it, it's very confusing. So if you're an adult watching this, I don't know if this is what they were going for, but I guess we're picking apart an 80 year old movie, but I'll do it anyway. That's what we do. <laughs> I think, I think it would have made a little bit more sense if Jiminy Cricket was like an uncle sort of character, because there is sort of a weird relationship between like an uncle and a nephew of like, what's the limit of what I can do? Like, yeah. I can't, I can't raise this kid. This is somebody else's child, but in this situation, I am responsible for this kid or I'm this kid's teacher. You know, maybe that's a better comparison. And Geppetto kind of, he gets it. He gets it easy as a parent. Like, <laughs> besides the whole, besides the whole eaten by a whale thing. Yes, that's I his own fault. So. <laughs> like, Fair like, enough. His tr- If he had done nothing, if he had just, you know, I mean, I get it. Like, he's worried about Pinocchio and he wants to go save Pinocchio, and that all makes sense, of course. But it's just, it is a little strange that he decides the way to save Pinocchio is to go out into the ocean, even though there's <laughs> no indication that Pinocchio's there. Like, they don't even try to be like, oh, somebody saw Pinocchio getting on a boat. That would make sense for Geppetto to be like, I got to go save Pinocchio. I got to go on this boat. No, he doesn't do any research. He doesn't do any sort of investigation. The police don't exist in this story. He's just sort of out in the ocean. And it's so it's so weirdly written that they literally have to have the blue fairy send a dove with instructions (laughs) Oh, this is where Geppetto is, because as the screenwriter, I know for a fact that you're not going to know what to do next. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's all there. It's <laughs> I got to be honest. Still a good movie, but, you know. Yeah, it's still fine. I just I got to be honest. I was not thinking that deep into the intricacies of it, uh, given that it's a fairy tale and everything. We've had months. <laughs> to think of course. No, no. I'm not begrudging it at all. <laughs> do not get me wrong. There is there's there's clearly a place for this and, uh, and i'm glad that you're saying it i just i think will's upset because he loves this oh, movie no. and he's like you know what john <laughs> i have none of none of your john sense about that. there ain't no strings on me john Haha. <laughs> <laughs> i will i can we talk about that because like i i like this movie it's not my favorite disney but will isn't this like one of your favorites if not your favorite disney movie uh no i wouldn't go that far but i mean maybe one of my favorites i don't know i'd have to go back and Okay, my mistake. For some reason, I thought you loved this movie. And so I was like, I mean, I like it a lot. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, that's the thing is, like, I don't know how much I can piece apart from, like, nostalgia and how much is, like, I, I, I'm i trying to figure out, like, which ones, like, I really just love, which ones I watched a lot, and which ones fall into both categories. I'm not quite sure. Pinocchio is somewhere in between there, but uh, I like it a lot for sure. One of my favorites, I'd have to think about it, but it's up there. I, I imagine we'll, we'll have... Uh numerous opportunities throughout the course of the show to go back to the Disney well. Um, one other thing I want to talk about, and we're sort of jumping around here, but that as, as is our want, um, I think uh, that opening where uh, when you wish upon a star happens and it sort of creeps through the village and into Geppetto's workshop. And it's like this candlelit, environment and everyone's like so cheerful at everything and like really hopeful about the future 
Uh, I think that's a really fascinating start to the movie because uh, as we know, it's going to be such a journey for uh, most, if not all of the characters within it. And yet it begins with this, this really delightful of uh, this really delightful sequence of essentially bringing life into the world. It almost, it, you, you could almost see this story or this this tone in the opening scene you could see a really similar tone in like an opening scene where a child is born you know like that's that's i think that's very interesting to see how it starts really joyfully but also fearfully of the future um and it sets a really good template for what is to follow in this really pleasant opening and so that's kind of the first thing that struck me and uh i think that's probably the reason why why so much uh, focus as we've addressed is usually put on the front half of the movie because that's when that's it's when the slow it's when the least happens but it's also when the most is taking place if you know what I'm saying like it's when all the all the pieces are being laid out so that this journey can take place and sort of escalate in uh, in what's the word I'm looking for sort of escalate in pace as it goes along and so I was really taken by that I think I think uh maybe the inciting incident of what you're saying, like their intention of making the first part of this movie so immersive is to make the whole movie immersive. Like it's setting a tone of this is a very, this is a different animated world. You know, it was not taking for granted that people knew at this point what a Disney movie was because they were still figuring out what Disney movies were. There was only one before this and I think Walt always wanted, at least at this point, he wanted the shorts that the animated shorts he was doing, he wanted them to be very different from the feature films. He wanted the feature films to be their own thing. And that's a tradition that like continues today where the featured animated films by Disney have a very specific feel that they go for. And one of the Pinocchio does establish a formula that continues, which is like the first part is very storybook it is very, it takes its time, but it still has a lot of energy to it. And the purpose of it is to just fully envelop you in the trappings of this movie and what this movie is going to be and what it's going to feel like. This location really comes alive and there's so much effort put into establishing the characters so that the rest of the movie can be a little bit more of like a free fall of yeah. like storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. I hadn't thought of that. You think about like the circle of life, the opening of the lion King, that's literally exactly exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, I think we sort of jumped around a lot, but are are there any sort of uh, specific sequences that either of y'all want to want to fixate on? Um, Because there are a few that we haven't touched on yet. Well, I mean, I would say Pleasure Island, but I mean, that one might be a little bit later in the game. (laughs) No, we could jump around. It's fine. Yeah. Pleasure Island. Um, which is where it's it's been a few months. So so remind me of how it takes place. So Pinocchio is sort of is sort of causing trouble and skipping school and stuff. And then it's Honest John the cat, right? That's that's who sort of instigates. Honest John is the fox. Gideon is the cat. And the coachman, they're talking to the coachman about like, yeah, this stupid kid. And the coachman's just like, I I have a job for you. So he recruits honest John and Gideon to convince mm-hmm. kids to go on his coach so that they'll go to pleasure Island. And at this point they do run into Pinocchio after he's on his way home to find Geppetto. So really like the whole pleasure Island sequence 
is kind of inconsequential because all of that takes place and then Pinocchio is on the way home again. And so you would probably take that whole thing out. The only thing it really does is sort of develop Pinocchio as a character, sort of teaches him like what he did wrong and everything like that. But you could you could argue he already does sort of learn that lesson with Stromboli, which is right before all of this happens. So it's like it's very repetitive. It's like Pinocchio uh, does something he's not supposed to. And the Blue Fairy has to bail him out um, or a combination of the Blue Fairy and Jiminy Cricket. He's on the way home. Something else happens. He gets distracted and gets sent somewhere else. Like it just keeps happening over and over again. But then the movie ends with him being like, "Okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go save my father. And he becomes like a hero. Whereas the Pleasure Island is, it feels like a detour. Maybe so. I don't. I don't know if I. I don't know if I buy that though, because I think if I'm thinking about the way that, especially compared to the original novel, at least the synopsis that I read of it, if it was just Pinocchio like messed up a couple of times and then learned his lesson, uh, I don't know if I would have bought it as much because I think that's not necessarily how it actually goes in real life. And how many times can you think of like a time that you've learned a lesson and then essentially forgotten it later down the road and had to learn it again? I think that's uh, it's, it's, it's repetitive because it's taking place within such a short amount of time. Yes. But also I think it is very reflective of how we learn as human beings and especially as children where uh, it takes a long time for something to really sink in a lot of the time. And so I think it it adds to the genuine journey that Pinocchio goes on. And also without it, we wouldn't have had such an indelible uh, visual representation of what it means to not learn that lesson. The slowly turning into a donkey stuff, that's like, that's it's not necessarily the scariest thing in the movie, but conceptually that's terrifying. Oh yeah, it, I think it is. Like the, te- the tension, the suspense, like it's really effective. Yeah. Like seeing Lampwick slowly turn yep. into, yeah, it's like, it's harrowing. Uh-huh. He calls out for his mother. <laughs> right. <laughs> Though I think the the scene before that, right before that, where we see like the one kid like talk yeah. for the first time as a donkey and then just get like pushed Alexander. into the pen. Yeah, I think, I don't know, for me, that's a little bit more disturbing, I guess, than than uh, the scene where we see a young boy get turned to a donkey. But I mean, you know, neither of them are... <laughs> Are, uh, There's also like these but... shadowy figures that come out of nowhere yeah. that are like helping. Like, who are those people? Like, mm-hmm. what is that? I, I was very confused. Shadowy figures. That's who yeah. they are. Yeah, I, I do know some people <laughs> have like criticized the film as like those are like a maybe a subtle allegory for African American slaves. I don't know if that was the intention, and I think it's so ambiguous that I, I feel like you have to read into that, but I'm not sure. Uh, but to what you were saying earlier, Sam, with like the the way he learns his lessons i think that kind of ties into why i think they reworked pinocchio as a character and make him so different from the novel is that like in the novel he is like a troublemaker he's like a bad kid like he chooses to do the wrong thing out of spite which isn't that realistic this movie the way they the way they rework pinocchio is that he's just naive and he's just kind of you know it's it's sort of putting it out there like the kids are kind of dumb and kids are gullible <laughs> and that's the lesson you're learning is not to do the right thing when you know there's a bad thing it's that kids need to like it's actually kind of progressive <laughs> in terms of its psychology it's like kids kids need like um to trust authority figures who have their best interests at heart and not just go along with strangers i guess that's not that progressive but you know what i mean it's like yeah, yeah. it's trying to say that like kids at a certain age 
um, can still learn morality without it being supposed presuppose that kids are just pure evil as soon as they're born. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting take. I like that a lot. I think it's, um, definitely gets to the heart of, uh, of just the journey that this movie has kind of become famous for about, uh, you know, learning from experience, regardless of whether or not it takes place over a long period of time. Um, and also, uh, realizing that there are people who are older than you and who are smarter than you, uh, and that you should listen to. And so I think that's something that's a very positive thing for that. I think a lot of children could, uh, really benefit from also that shortcuts are bad. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, trying to, even though he is successful as an actor, just kind of a mixed message. (laughs) (laughs) Successful as an actor. But at the same time, like even though he's successful, like he doesn't understand that people will take advantage of him. And I think that's a heart of what that side story is about. And Pleasure Island is kind of a shortcut to like literal pleasure being your motivation instead of uh, learning and growing up and maturity and instead like indulging all of your hedonistic desires uh, at the expense of everybody else. Um, that can get you into trouble because people who offer that to you always have some sort of agenda. Like if somebody just wants to do something really nice for you, it's okay as a kid to question like, okay, do they really have my best interests at heart? And I think that's supposed to be the lesson there. Yeah. It's, it's warning against the pitfalls of temptation and corruption, uh, which, which I think is neat. Um, I think we've, 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 we've talked about a lot. I want to, one other thing that I want to get into a little more specifically is the underwater sequence, specifically Monstro the Whale. Okay. So not the first part where they're like just walking around underwater and they can breathe. Not the first part, not when they're just, you know, rowing around and, and, uh, do whatever they want. No, this is the part with the whale. It's a cool effect. Like the animation is really cool, but that entire sequence feels very pointless and it doesn't really go anywhere. There's a really horny goldfish. I can't yeah. stand it. Yeah, to the point where when when you mentioned that just now, I was I had to rack my brain like, what is John talking about? What do you mean a horny goldfish? <laughs> All the <laughs> fish in this movie are horny, <laughs> <laughs> including monster to an extent. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. Um, but what happens is that Pinocchio does escape from Pleasure Island. Uh, returns home to find that Geppetto has gone looking for him again in the ocean inexplicably. Uh, And uh, Pinocchio says, I've got to go save my father. And so Jiminy Cricket goes along for the ride. And then, and then I'm a little hazy memory wise on what happens afterwards. But what I do remember is that there's a giant freaking whale and it's really terrifying. Just the, just the sheer magnitude of monsters conveyed wonderfully through uh, through this underwater animation. I think especially the way that um, it's sort of when we first see Monstro, we're sort of slowly going through the water. We see a rock. We see another rock. We see another rock. Wait a minute. That one's not a rock. That's a whale. And that and that was really effective, that sort of slow reveal in the moment, uh, yeah. watching that, it for the, the first editing time. Of that, the editing of that final chase scene is so effective. Like for its time, especially the way that like it gets you hooked on whether or not they're going to survive. It, it's such a great sequence. I think one of the larger, you could say that one of the larger problems with animated films of this era, and one of the reasons they're not as strong narratively is because like, I, I think that we, we kind of take, take for granted the animated movies we have now, which are made in computers, which some of them take like five years to make the ones that were still hand drawn animated. And they were able to 
do the story alongside the animation. Um, or I think these days they're able to do that in a way that they couldn't back. Like yeah. if, if you wanted to make an animated movie, you had to do a lot of the planning for the animation way before you had the story figured out. Yeah. So that's a big reason why there's so many of these plot contrivances, why there are all of these gaps or things that just sort of happen. It's because they didn't, they didn't have the resources to just redo a lot of the work yeah. to insert the story. And it's just very different. So, you know, we can complain. I've, I've complained a lot that yes, the story is not nearly as elegant or yeah. elegantly told or airtight. Yeah, but for what they had, what they were working with, I cut this movie a ton of slack. I still really enjoy it, and I still think it's really good. I just think that it is worth pointing out. It's almost like celebrating how far we've come that animators do have a little bit more freedom <laughs> where they don't feel like really confined to a storyboard that was approved a few years ago. They uh-huh. can actually like innovate on the go. Yeah. They, they had to set things in stone well beforehand. And I have no doubt that uh, there are countless examples of animated movies that were, while being made, someone realized like, oh, that doesn't make sense, does it? Well, we got to stick with it. We can't change it now. So I imagine that must have been uh, a curious uh, conflict to run up against from time to time in the animation world. Um, but yeah, that's so so getting back to the to the monstro sequence it's really effective in just how dire it all feels by the end uh and it of course helps that there are state-of-the-art visuals like that like that's um i think if if they had not perfected like the visuals of the ocean and stuff uh it wouldn't have been nearly as exciting but because they took so long to make sure it was just right uh it's it's really effective and so i think i think that ends the movie on a pretty damn good note honestly I agree. Yeah. Monstro is a, a really cool character, a really cool like idea for this. Um, although I think, I think there is like a whale in the, uh, the original novel, but then also like you could say that, yes, this is borrowing a lot from uh, Jonah and the whale. There's a lot of biblical allegory in this. To, in oh, fact, sure, like, yeah. you know, Jiminy Cricket is, is kind of like a sort of a connection, JC, Jesus Christ, um, Jimmy cricket is another word for like Jesus Christ. And there's oh. a lot of, uh, there's a lot of biblical stuff here. Like there's a lot of like the blue fairy sort of representing like the Holy spirit. And you could, you could do a whole essay <laughs> on how much of this they probably had in mind. Um, but the idea of like humans being led astray by like temptation, like there are a lot of, uh, a lot, a lot of connections you can make. Yeah, for sure. Fascinating stuff. Well, uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff. I think we've covered a lot of ground. I was wondering before we wrap this up and sort of give our final thoughts, are there any other uh, things that either of you wanted to address real fast before we bring this to a close? Yeah, I'd say, you know, we didn't talk about Stromboli a whole lot. Uh, we did allude yeah. to him quite a bit more in the opening of, uh, we didn't, sorry, the guest host did. Yes. yes. And uh, <laughs> yeah, just like the multicultural. Chris from the legal department. <laughs> yeah, the parade of uh, stereotypes. Very strange sequence. And with the exception of When You Wish Upon a Star, I think that the music in general in this movie is not very strong. The score is good, but When You Wish Upon a Star is the only thing that really stands out, I think. Like, No Strings on Me is kind of like a ho-hum tune. And then other than that, nothing else is really memorable. Like, There's a, a song number kind of early in the film with Jiminy Cricket that... I don't remember any of it at this point. Like it just, it didn't really click with me. And no, I was going to say, you're going to talk that over with NSYNC there, Jonathan. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, no strings attached. Their album. 
Oh, that's sorry, all... no strings on me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all. That's what inspired. Uh, I mean, there's a lot that was inspired there, but that's obviously what the inspiration is there. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that Age of Ultron yeah. even weirdly <laughs> yeah. borrows from Pinocchio, so there's that. Um, sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind no strings on me, but I see what you're saying that it's sort of it doesn't leave as much of a as much of a distinct impression. It's it's kind of like that song in in Coco, you know, the like you know where he does uh, un poco loco or whatever. You bite your tongue, John. That is. I fantastic. like that song, but I'm just saying it's kind of like it's it's the song that's sort of in the middle of the soundtrack. That it's nobody's favorite, but it's there and it's it's, it's, it's kind not, of catchy enough. It's not nearly as out of place. That's what I'd say. Um, but to answer your original question, Sam, I was gonna say. One thing I wanted to bring up randomly is, has anyone seen the Roberto Benigni Pinocchio? You know, I thought about it, but I've heard such horrendous things that I thought maybe I could I could wait, but perhaps yeah. I should have. I don't know. I mean, I just have a very firm theory that this story only works in animation, and I have not been able to be proven otherwise. Every time I think of something that's, that tries to do this story in live action, it just it's either like that... Um, Jonathan Taylor Thomas one where I still haven't watched that because the the VHS cover creeps me out. Um, <laughs> I saw that when I was a kid. Is it yeah. good? I don't know. It just the cover no. always creeped me out. It, it is kind of freaky. Like Pleasure Island, uh, that the whole mechanics of that is like the water turns them into I think still donkeys, but it's really creepy. Like the way the they're on like a roller coaster and like the water that hits them and then they're donkeys when they come out. That's one of the few things I actually remember. Um, and there is some good comedy, if I remember right, like the beginning of it, like the town, there's more characters. It feels a little bit more like beauty and the beast. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's very creepy and off-putting. Yeah. And then there's like what the, the Drew Carey Geppetto one, that might be too much. That's a real deep cut, I guess. (laughs) Are you sure that wasn't a nightmare that you had one time? No, I think that movie exists. I've seen clips from it. I've never heard of that. So my, really? Just know that my life will never be the same. Yeah. And obviously there's Shrek. Yeah. 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 That's that's still animated. And Pinocchio is more of a sight. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what I mean. So I think that's I think Pinocchio is a story that only really works in animation. I have not been proven otherwise. Like the only exception would maybe be, like I said, AI. Hmm. But that just takes it in a different direction. Like I, I can't see like. Yeah. There is a 2021 live action Pinocchio that will be coming out. I think yep. Tom Hanks is still going to be Geppetto. Yeah. Robert and, Zemeckis. Uh, is Robert doing Zemeckis. Right? Yep. Yeah. So, is it going to be like Forrest Gump? Stay tuned. Who knows? Who knows? But I think I do think a live action Pinocchio can work with like the technology we now have. <laughs> it's just yeah, I think 1996 was too long ago to make <laughs> that kind of thing work. And now, like I think I think you can make a convincing Pinocchio that's animated correctly, and you can sort of polish the kinks of this 1940 version, which, as I've said a lot of times uh, it has a lot of gaps yep. and I think this is the kind of movie that does kind of warrant a remake. I think yeah. like there's room for it is the, and I can't remember at the moment is the Robert Zemeckis one that is being produced under Disney, right? Like that's not going to be an independent thing. Is it? Um, that is Disney. Okay. Yeah. So that, so that's another one of these remakes then. Yeah. Cause at one point, um, weirdly Paul Thomas Anderson was attached to be working on a Disney I never live action that. remake. Like I never, thought, are, I figured that was not going to stick. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah. Oh yeah, Sam, Sam Mendes, Mendes was attached to it at one point. My yeah. Goodness. I mean, it's something they clearly want to do. I just don't. I just don't think it'll work. I mean, I, I 
you know, I love Zemeckis. I think Tom Hanks is a good choice for Depetto. I mean, I'll be curious to see it, but like there was a live action Pinocchio movie just last year, which also had Roberto Benigni. What? <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I mean, just I haven't seen it, but just from what I have seen, it's it's still I don't think the technology is there. Huh. Like I just don't think it works. <laughs> Weird. I honestly the the reason I'm looking forward, but the reason I'm I have a little bit more faith is that Paul King is one of the co-writers. And uh, we were just talking about Paul King on the main oh, show, yeah. He's director of the Paddington movies. And I think that is a good, that is a guy who does understand whimsy, whimsy. that can yeah. still have like mm. serious elements. He's not well known for being like a dark filmmaker, but if he's working on this script, I have a little bit more faith. Like I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this based on his involvement. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Well, We've talked a lot about Pinocchio. I think it's that time that we give our quick final thoughts. Uh, Will, why don't you go first? Um, yeah, no, I mean, this really holds up for me still. Uh, I I mean, I, I obviously see it differently now as an adult. Like, I mean, I can be a little bit more analytical with it and, and look at it from a more critical perspective. But I still think this movie at its best really does capture what I love about Disney. And it does capture that, that whimsy and charm like we we're talking about. Uh, and that, that boyish sense of like anything can seem possible and uh, just good morals and optimism that I think really shines in their best work. Um, yeah, I, I still have fond memories and fond feelings for this film, for sure. Very nice. John, take us home. Yeah, I think this is one of the one of the best Disney films, I think. And it is a masterpiece. Like if you take it into context of what they were working with and what was involved, like you just feel the animator's passion in this movie in a way that you don't always feel with Disney. It's something that I think started to really slip with Disney in the fifties and sixties is that sort of, we can do anything mentality, this pioneering spirit. And this is like that, that sophomore film that is a bit underappreciated. It's the us to snow white's get out, you know, that it's doing a lot. And it's for some people, it is a little bit off putting, but I think time has been really, really, uh, gracious to this movie it ages really well the humor ages well the the animation is still just impeccably done the only thing that it falls short in is in something that is in the grand scheme of what this movie is and trying to be not as crucial as some other movies tend to be and that's the idea of like this movie's story having a lot of holes as i've said over and over again and I guess I've said it a lot, but it, it doesn't drag this film down all that much because to what Sam, you were saying, I think you're dead on about how this movie has such a good uh, immersion to it. And like, it's just easy to get sucked in and be like, that's kind of strange, but I'll go with it. Right. And combined with everything else, it's just, it's just wonderful to watch. And like, it's still one of the best Disney movies uh, for tons of reasons we didn't even start to get into and everybody should give it a rewatch. I think it, it really is worth everybody's time. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much in the same boat. Uh, I, in case it hasn't made been made abundantly clear, uh, I did like this movie quite a lot. Um, I think, uh, as is true with so, so many movies, of course, I do not have that grandfathered in connection. So, uh, it, it didn't deeply move me in the way that it perhaps has moved so many others, but who knows, maybe that day will come someday that down the line. I'm a fan. I think it's it's a really good story about just the just the excitement and the joy and the fear of uh, bringing life into the world and how it's not all going to be sunshines and rainbows, but it's it's there's going to be a lot of a lot of important stuff happening along the way. So I'm glad to have finally seen it, gentlemen. 
it is that time. Now, uh, John, did, did, did we want to make our big announcement first or did we want to decide what we're going to talk about next month first? We should probably say the announcement first because that sort of paints what we're talking about next in a way. I agree. I agree. So, uh, gentlemen, ladies, friends and enemies of all shapes and sizes, um, we are expanding the extra milestone starting this upcoming month. Uh, Cinemaholics.what? Cinemaholics.com. Oh, gosh. It's so it's Pavlovian at this point. <laughs> That's fantastic. Anyway, <laughs> um, we are going to be expanding the extra milestone um, because it sort of dawned on us as we were uh, embarking in the long process of actually making this episode. Uh, John suggested the idea to me, hey, Sam, how would you like to be able to do uh, more extra milestone episodes with uh, without me and Will having to be there all the time? And I said, well, as much as I love the two of y'all's company, that's- You didn't say that. You were just like, oh yeah, sounds good to me. Good idea. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I was putting- Can I, can I do that for every episode? I, I was like, oh, well. <laughs> Yeah, like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was putting words in my own mouth, and now it's it's time yeah. that the call out. The, nice try. The favor has been returned. I'll I'll take it. I'll take it. But re- regardless, uh, I said that sounds like a fascinating idea because, of course, as um, even at the beginning of this episode, I listed out like a dozen or two movies that we just didn't get to talk about. This will be. Uh, our chance to cover those on the extra milestone. Uh, so what is going to be happening is that every week or every two weeks, uh, there's going to be a little bit of a smaller extra milestone episode, uh, which will cover a, a presumably more than one movie. And so that's going to be really exciting. We're going to get to cover a lot more stuff with a lot of my personal friends, some of which you may have heard of uh, and some of whom uh, you'll be uh, sorry that you hadn't heard it before. And I'm very happy to announce that our first guest on what I'm tentatively calling the mini milestone, even though I'm not, we haven't really decided on an official name for this, is uh, the first guest is going to be um, Cinemaholics, part time characters, and now conspiring alumni, Adonis Gonzalez. So you're going to want to look forward to that. That's going to be coming very, very soon, hopefully within the next week. And so, that means that we're going to be changing up the way we do things a little bit before what we've done is we've done sort of a listener poll of a half dozen or so movies every month for y'all to choose from. What we're going to do now is just between the three of us right here, I've got a couple of titles here. We're going to decide right now what we're going to talk about next month, which will in air quotes be the month of March for the extra milestone since we're so behind. Uh, But what do you say we begin friends? Yeah, I'll I'll say real quick before we do. I think the idea the idea come. I think as you said, it's like we'll be doing this every two weeks now, and because we're so behind, so hopefully help us out like catching up a bit. But then also we we've noticed like when we do when we did do the polls, uh, reliably the listeners mostly went for the big obvious movies, but also the sort of like the movies we don't expect. So we want to still live to the spirit of that where. Um, depending on how things work out, it'll, it won't always be the same, but we're hoping that like one ep- one episode a month will be a little bit more of that unexpected film. And then you'll get like the bigger film that you would expect. 
And that that's sort of how we decide. Like, And then the people who come onto the show will be a little bit more prepared because we're able to curate this. We can give people more time to watch the movie, to actually like really look into it, do their own research. Whereas like it's felt a little rushed in the past and we think it'll drastically improve the quality uh, of the show if we figure this out a little quicker. Um, yeah. But as always, we still want to hear listener feedback. We still want your input on different things that are coming up that's still available to you via the comments and uh, running into the show. And uh, But uh, we do still want to let people know way more in advance what we're going to be watching so you have a chance to check it out for yourself. For sure, for sure. So without any further ado whatsoever, uh, let's decide what the three of us are going to be talking about for the month of March. So I've got five titles here, uh, and I say... We get right into it. First up is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca celebrating 80 years. It's a uh, best picture winner. uh, Hitchcock's only best picture winner, in fact. It's a very iconic movie. It's one I haven't seen. So that's one option we have. Uh, Next up is The Grapes of Wrath, also celebrating 80 years. John's Ford, uh, John's Ford's, John Ford's adaptation of John Steinbeck's novel, uh, starring Henry Fonda, among others. That's another very indelible one as well. Um, another one, last year, uh, about this time last year, in fact, we talked about Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows, which was one of the movies that sort of kicked off the French New Wave. And one of the other defining films of the French New Wave is Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. So that is one of our options. And uh, finally, we have The Sound of Music, which is, I do not need to explain, is an absolute classic for a variety of reasons. And finally, and this one is, and this is probably the weird one, even though I don't believe either of you have seen it. It is uh, a movie that not a lot of people have heard of. And yet, I think, and this is a bold statement, it's the greatest prison break movie of all time. It is... Uh, Jacques Becker's Le True, which translates to The Hole. Have either of you ever heard of The Hole? Do you say The Hole? Yes. I've heard of this movie. This is, uh, yeah, Jacques Becker. Uh, is this the one with, uh, what's his face? Uh, I'm trying to remember. His last name is Constantine, but I don't remember his first name. Uh, um, but I think I he plays the main guy. I do not remember off the top of my head. Let me look that up here. Yes, Michelle, Michelle Constantine. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So yes, I... I've seen a chunk of this. I don't think I've ever watched the whole thing. It's really long, if I remember. It's a little over. It's it's it's, it's about like two, two not long, a long, little bit over two hours and fifteen, but not. It's not okay. like Gone with the Wind length or anything. That would be a good one to talk about. That would be fascinating. I would love to. I would love to talk about that. But, hmm. uh, Will, what are your thoughts? Just to just as a refresher, we've got Rebecca, The Grapes of Wrath, The True, Breathless, and The Sound of Music. Where do you stand uh, hearing those titles right now? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess kind of similar to last month, if I remember correctly. Um, it's weird because I've seen most of these. Uh, I, I, I'm not used to like uh, being somewhat caught up on the titles, but I haven't seen Rebecca. So I think that one might be the one I'm leaning towards. That one has been on my list for a long time and I still haven't gotten a chance to see it. But okay. I'm open to any of those. Interesting. John, what about yourself? I'm similarly open minded. Um, I also have not seen Rebecca. Oh, really? Um, so none of us breathless. have seen it. Yes, yeah, so that would be interesting. At, at the same time, though, I feel like it would be kind of weird if we didn't talk about Sound of Music. But I guess, I don't know. Are people really that interested I mean, in Sound pretty, of Music? It's a pretty well-covered film, too. It's not it's like true. there's 
there's not like a lot of ground there to, yeah. that has yeah. to be explored. Honestly, yeah, if, if I if I was going with my heart, uh, it would be between a movie I haven't seen, Rebecca, a Hitchcock Gap, and a movie that I have seen, Breathless, but I've only seen it once. I'm curious yeah. how it holds up. Yeah, I'm in the same camp. Yeah, I've only seen Breathless once myself, all the way through at least. I've seen clips of it again. I've seen it a, a couple of times. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Breathless, so I'd be down for that. Um, hmm. Honestly, I'm probably, weirdly enough, I'm also probably leaning towards Rebecca, uh, but also if probably my number one choice would be Latrue, just because I love it so much, and I would love to get to uh, show it to a wider audience. From what I remember, it was I do remember it being pretty thrilling, but I don't even know what happens in the end. So that would be an interesting first real watch for me. Very interesting. Uh, Will, do you have any interest at all in the true, just out of curiosity? And be honest now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess I would be more inclined to see something I haven't seen from these just because I, I tend to, you know, like to broaden my my collection of yeah. films I've seen. But yeah, no, I mean, like I said, nothing in the, none of these films I'm against or I, none of them I oppose. But okay. I mean, should we do a double feature? Oh, that could be interesting. Do, should we do Rebecca and Latrue? You know, that sounds really fascinating, honestly. I would love to do that. What do you think, Will? Sure. We're going to do a twofer for the month a of March. Twofer. I can't believe it. Wow, that was that was a lot easier than I thought it would be. So, uh, listeners, there you have it. That's what awaits you on next month. We're going to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca and Jacques Becker's The True. A lot of first watches are going to be taking place, and I'm really pumped for it, and I hope you are as well. Uh, and with that, I believe... That's our episode. Again, look forward to those uh, uh, smaller episodes. The first one with Adonis Gonzalez is going to come out very shortly. And uh, unless there is anything else that either of y'all wanted to say, I think we can sign off. I guess, yeah, because you're not going to tease yet what you're seeing with Adonis. Uh, I'll I'll say one of the movies because we're going to talk- solidify it, right? We are, the main movie we're going to be talking about is uh, most likely now that we've decided. We're not going to talk about it is okay. uh, the the Grapes of Wrath Adonis expressed a lot of interest in. So we're probably going to oh. watch that. And also this one we're both really excited about. Uh, we're also going to be talking about the 1975 uh, capper of Godzilla's uh, Showa era, Terror of Mecha Godzilla, which is one mm. of my favorite Godzilla movies. Adonis hasn't seen it. And I'm excited to get to talk about that one specifically, because uh, as you may know, last year I watched every Godzilla movie and that one certainly sticks out in my memory. So those two and one more that we haven't quite decided on, but uh, you'll see when that arrives. I'm excited for Adonis's return to podcasting. Yeah, we've had him on Cinemaholics, the main show before and uh, of course, like he he and I were doing now conspiring back in like 2014. Yeah. So <laughs> been podcasting with Adonis for a long time, and I miss it. Miss it a lot. I miss I miss talking with Adonis as well. Adonis is chopping at the bit to podcast again. Perfect. So I think I think it's going to be a great episode. Even Will likes Adonis. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Like everybody is a fan of Adonis. I don't know what the implication there is. As if there is there is some reason why I wouldn't like Adonis. <laughs> Um, I don't know, Will. There's there's some bad blood between Will Ashton and the the now conspiring crew. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I don't know if he's actually real bad blood or not. I mean, I have nothing against him. I just like making things up. It's a myth. Don't believe John. John is just trying to throw gasoline on the fire, but it's not. Trying to make this interesting for everybody, you know? 
You say that as if it's not already interesting when we all get along nicely. That's true. Fair enough. Fair enough. With that all in mind, from the Internet Colorado, I'm Sam Noland. From the Internet California, I'm John Negroni. And from Pennsylvania, I'm Lashley. And we'll see you next time. No request is too extreme When you wish upon a star as dream